Welcome back to the Windpower News Review with me, Claire Warren, editor of Windpower Monthly. And me, Ian Griggs, deputy editor of Windpower Monthly. We're back with our regular panel of experts for their take on the big stories from our recent news coverage. Today, we'll ask our panellists for their views on the big Western turbine manufacturers' quarterly and full-year results. And we ask whether they herald a return to profitability or if there are more challenges on the horizon. Later in the review... We ask if offshore wind has reached an inflection point in the wake of Orsted's bombshell announcement that it was cancelling its Ocean Winds 1 and 2 projects and discuss whether regulators are finally heeding developers' warnings. And finally, is a wind industry trade war brewing between the EU and China because of what some in the European wind industry have dubbed unfair competition? And what would the effects of imposing tariffs be? It's all on the latest News Review podcast, a regular series in addition to our regular episodes exploring the issues in the wind industry today. Joining us for the News Review to discuss some of the big industry stories, we welcome back our two panellists, both regular contributors to Wimpower Monthly's analysis and opinion sections. First, Shashi Bala. Shashi is Director and Head of Research in Renewable Energy at the Brinkman Group. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're also joined by Will Sheard. Will is Director of Analysis and Due Diligence at consultancy firm K2 Management. Hi, nice to be back. I'm keen to get started and discuss some of the big themes to emerge from our recent news coverage. Most Western turbine firms published quarterly or full year results in the last four weeks, and they revealed some stark differences about their relative financial health. Vestas said it was on track to return to a slim profit this year, Meanwhile, German turbine firm Nordex and US turbine manufacturer GE both continued to make heavy losses, but these were significantly reduced compared to last year. Siemens Gamesa, however, did not share in this change of fortunes. Parent company Siemens Energy, which has accepted 7.5 billion euros worth of guarantees from the German federal government, posted losses of 4.5 billion euros for the 2023 fiscal year. The firm said problems at Siemens Gamesa had overshadowed the, quote, excellent performance of its gas and grid business, while admitting that its turbine subsidiary will not return to profit until 2026, two years later than planned. Despite the issues, Siemens Gamesa has also revealed that it will relaunch its defective 5X platform. To kick off, gentlemen, do you think the OEMs are on the brink of profitability or are there more headwinds to come, given that we're living in uncertain geopolitical times with the war in Gaza? Will, would you like to kick us off on this one? I think certainly there are positive signs, but I think it's probably a little bit too early to say that this is the end of the crisis, as it were. The improvements in performance at Vestas and the the narrowing losses at GE and Nordex are all movements in the right direction. And I also think it's reasonable to say that the more significant issues at Siemens are related to a separate issue than the general industry uncertainty. You know, we know that they've been hit with a, a significant underlying quality issue that needs resolution, and that's compounding the situation at Siemens Gamesa. So yes, movements in the right direction. The end of the crisis, I think that's a little bit more difficult to say. Nobody expected the situation to happen with Israel and Hamas. Do you think that there could be a risk of something else looming on the horizon or escalation that could cause problems for the OEMs and, in fact, for the developers? The concern from the industry perspective would be 
you know, another commodity price shock, probably most likely oil price shock that could come out of the situation in Israel and Palestine. The impact that we saw in the Russia-Ukraine situation a couple of years ago seemed to me a little bit more fundamental to commodities the wind industry was buying and some of the wind industry metrics around electricity price, etc. I tentatively say that the situation in Israel and, and Palestine is likely to be less impactful than what we saw from Russia-Ukraine. Shashi, what do you think? Do you think uh, the OEMs are out of the woods or is there more trouble to come, whether of their own making or put on them from geopolitical events? Coming out of the woods is uh, very company specific because, as you also mentioned, uh, some of them is uh, self-inflicted and some of them are the external market challenges. As we were hypothesizing uh, about a year ago, that Vestas would be one of the first companies to come out of the woods, either in late 2023 or early 2024, and they're almost there. Most likely, Nordex would be probably make some way for thin margin in 2024 and would be making a decent size uh, profits in 2025. GE, I would expect uh, them not to make a major profit in 2024, but they would likely to make some margin in, in 2025 and 2026 because the ramping of the offshore, which they're booking 1 billion loss this year, probably a similar magnitude of losses next year as well. And that would probably dilute the gains that they have in the onshore division and Siemens, we were anticipating by 2025, but the existing issues would also roll on into 25 and 26. So if you also look at it in the capital markets there, and you can see that uh, until 2026, they would have the backlog of projects that they'll be executing until 2026. They have about 4 billion plus worth of contracts sitting at uh, zero margin are for the most part uh, a negative margin. Besides that, they also have the ongoing uh, 4X and 5X platform issues that will certainly procrastinate the return to profitability of the company. Realistically, in Enercon 2025, uh, they should be making some uh, decent uh, margins. And the aspirations of these companies are also very different uh, when it comes to profitability. And the time it takes to get there would also change uh, as a consequence of that. If you look at Vastus, they're targeting about 10% EBIT margins uh, midterm in their uh, books is 2025. While if you look at Nordex, their margin is 8%, and that's by 2025. So companies also have different uh, metrics to measure their uh, profitability. It's good that everyone's actually at least heading in the right direction, albeit at their own pace. Go back to Seams Gamesa, which both of you have mentioned. At its markets day, it was announced that they were going to focus more on relaunching the 5X and also looking at some European onshore markets. Do you think that's enough to bring them back into the game and, as they hope, break even in the 2026 fiscal year? Perhaps, um, Will, maybe we could start with you on that one. I think the relaunch is possibly a little bit more a press release rather than actually project experience. I think there was maybe a little bit of caution around new deliveries of the 5X over the last six months, but I'm not aware of any projects where that was actually a practical impact in the end. So resolving those technical issues should be a key focus the focusing on the new markets for the delivery of that turbine is sensible, at least as a short-term action. How that impacts the longer-term market position of Siemens Gamesa in the onshore sector is a slightly more complicated question. 
by refocusing, you're potentially giving away some of that market share to your competition, which is not a good decision to have to take. Being more selective on both the technology you develop and the projects you supply, I think, is a sensible decision. I think a lot of the issues that we've seen both in the OEMs and in the project development side is a general sort of overstretching um, and overextending. What about you, Shashi? Is that enough for Siemens to focus just on the European markets to claw back the market share? In my view, it is certainly insufficient. Needless to say that uh, Europe, the markets in general for onshore are increasing significantly. Germany is probably going to at least grow by two times the current annual installs. However, Siemens has a wafer thin market share in Germany, the biggest market in Europe. Even if Siemens is strengthening the product portfolio and refocusing on Germany, it has to face an uphill battle with companies like Vestas, Nordex, Enercon, who in the recent years have strengthened significantly their position and their offerings. However, there are other markets in Scandinavia, which are large size uh, average project sizes where Siemens has been successful. And in Southern Europe, and uh, some of the emerging markets in Eastern Europe. We get the point of why Siemens wants to focus on Europe because of the supply chain footprint. First thing they want to do is they want to lower the landed cost of the projects, and they have a huge supply chain footprint in Southern Europe, partly in Western and Northern Europe as well. But that is not sufficient uh, for Siemens to gain back share. They should strengthen their position in the biggest markets, excluding China, that's U.S., because Siemens has taken a significant beating in the last three and a half years. Even before these problems surfaced, they declined market share compared to companies like Nordex, which has more than uh, tripled the market share in the U.S. market. If they have to return uh, sooner than later, the single biggest market they need to focus is U.S. Besides that, there are other markets like India and Australia, which are high volume markets. Siemens Gamesa is already has a leading position in India and the market is expected to increase going forward. They should strengthen this presence. Australia also is a Another high volume market. However, this market is dominated by large scale one gigawatts plus projects. So there are a few projects where they could leverage Siemens energy as a broad portfolio and then try to target such markets. Probably they'll figure out and most likely they will change the strategy, at least on the market positioning. There would be a course correction probably in the next few quarters. And then the new technologies that you're alluding to would not have a meaningful impact on the near term. And the new technology that we're talking about would realistically installed only two and a half years from now, unless they are significantly accelerating the timeline. But given the challenges that they're facing and the profitability concerns, it seems unlikely that they would accelerate that in terms of commercial deployment. It's good to hear that there is the potential for Siemens Gamesa to get back in the game. They've got to look perhaps more widely than Europe and be brave. The German government has offered Siemens Energy half of the 15 billion euro rescue package it was seeking in guarantees. Shashi, why do you think Siemens Energy has become a special case for state help? And would you expect to see that replicated for any other turbine manufacturer in Europe or the US? I think here it's a special case for uh, Siemens Energy, because if the backlog 
of the projects have increased substantially, not for uh, Siemens Gamesa, but in general, the other portfolio businesses. End of their fiscal year 23, they had about 110 billion euros worth of backlog. When you have such a backlog, it's kind of an obligation for them to get that additional guarantees from the state and also the other banks because the order backlog has increased by more than 70, 80% in the last two years. Out of the 110 billion, 42 billion is in the wind division, largely from the offshore division. The wind division is becoming a sizable part of the portfolio. It's roughly now 35% of the company's portfolio. And I would anticipate that wind as a portion of the backlog would probably in the next two, three years could easily be about 50% of Siemens Energy's complete uh, backlog. So that would be a magnitude of 50, 55 billion uh, euros backlog. So these guarantees are more of an obligation, not necessarily a financial support mechanism that the company is seeking, but should anything go wrong, there is always a state guarantee or the consortium of banks that they could rely upon. But that's a worst case scenario. Will, anything to add? When you look at whether this is a special case or not, um, Siemens is clearly a key brand in the German industrial history. So it's probably quite important to support to a certain extent. I'd also like to think the, the situation that Siemens have found themselves in is unlikely to repeat itself. The short-term support is um, probably welcome. Let's certainly hope that's the case. I'd quite like to move us on to offshore wind now. Wind developer Orsted dropped a bombshell in November. It announced it was walking away from its Ocean Winds 1 and 2 developments off the coast of New Jersey in the US. This provoked fury from New Jersey's governor, Phil Murphy, who slammed the decision as outrageous and called Allstead's credibility and competence into question. But Murphy and others were warned. Allstead chief Mads Nipper said as recently as September that there was a risk that it would walk away from the projects because a perfect storm of challenges was threatening financial viability. It's not the first project to fall by the wayside either. Vattafall dumped Norfolk Boreas project in the UK in July for similar reasons. In the last few weeks, there are signs that regulators and policymakers in both the US and the UK have heeded the concerns of developers. Several US states have announced new wind tenders, which include inflation protection mechanisms. While in the UK, the government has increased prices for fixed bottom offshore wind in the forthcoming CFD AR6 tender by about 66%. The first question would be around Ocean Winds 1 and 2. They have around 2.2 gigawatts of potential capacity. Why do you think the regulators failed to heed the developers' warnings that it could scrap the projects? Will, do you have any comments on that? I suppose firstly, thinking about why didn't the authorities heed the warnings I think at least in the UK, was the situations were moving a bit too quickly for government to react in time. And I think the projects needed to take decisions fast and governments could react. I think there was also an element of governments testing the projects to see if these situations were really as critical as the developers were saying they were. And I think those added up into a bit of a perfect storm. In terms of the reaction from the US regulators, my perception of that is that there was always a little bit of discomfort in the US about foreign developers coming in and essentially taking a monopoly in this new and exciting industry. And so for those developers to then sort of turn around and leave 
probably stung a little bit. I think that's probably a sort of a more sort of political, personal reaction than anything based on business. I think I see some positive signs that more recently announced tenders with the inflation protection mechanisms you mentioned, potentially higher PPA rates, etc., will deal with those issues to a certain extent. But then we've still got this sort of group of zombie projects that are a bit stuck. A question I sort of have to the industry is if there's a way that those projects could be revitalized with new agreements. There's been significant work done on those projects. It seems a shame to throw that all away and just start again on something fresh. We might be finally seeing a situation where we're starting to see the tide turn a little bit in offshore wind in terms of developers saying that we just can't do it at those prices. Prices have come too low. Developers didn't walk away from allocation round five easily. You know, It was clear that the strike price was too low to support the economics of the projects. And I suppose my frustration at the time was that even higher strike prices were still a good deal for the government. Given the current and forecast electricity prices, it's quite unlikely that the government would be actually paying back any significant amounts of money associated with these CFDs. So in terms of incentivizing the industry, it, it failed. I was actually really pleased the new administrative strike price for AR6 is actually quite a bit higher than I expected. While I don't know the specific project economics of the bidders, I would hope that that gives sufficient headroom for there to be a good chunk of projects that can clear at appropriate strike prices in AR6. And I also think it's still a good deal for the government. You know, I expect the contracts will close somewhere materially below the £73 per megawatt hour that's been set as the administrative strike price. But even at 73 if you look at the cost of new build gas, nuclear, you know, the alternatives, that's still a good deal for the government. And certainly for the UK market, it gives us more of a, a fighting chance to get back on track with offshore wind. Yes, we discussed this in the last podcast. Mm, we what do we need to do to reach the 2030 and 2050 targets? To be fair to the government, couldn't have been a better start to dig us out of this hole. Most of the PPAs in the US were signed about three, four years ago, and the world completely changed in this time frame. Why couldn't the regulators pay any heed to the developers' concerns? It's simply because their ability to respond and react to those changes was very slow. Think about New York. There have been quite a slew of projects that were cancelled and abandoned uh, abruptly. And the prices that they were asking, so let's say 140 as the average, the New York State Energy Regulatory Agency, they refrained from re-signing the PPAs at higher prices. But if you look at the recent uh, round where 4 gigawatts was awarded, they signed the PPAs at uh, $145 uh, per megawatt hour, which is not too different from what developers were asking a few quarters earlier. So from a developer perspective, it's absolutely fair in asking for a higher PPA prices because costs have shot up. But from a regulator perspective, if they have to look at the 20 years of the operating life of the project, it would cost them $25 billion. That was a big deficit that they have not planned for. They didn't have a mitigation plan in place New Jersey and Massachusetts were one of the first states to come forward to say that they're going to have indexation clauses or alternative bids in the proposals from the developers that would bake in the inflation uh, adjusted prices. Now we see that Connecticut and Rhode Island are also following that path. These are kind of steps in the right direction. 
because everybody is cognizant of the, the adverse developments and the inflationary price pressures. However, that said, the damage is already done. And in most cases, it's a irreversible damage. And that's exactly what we're talking about, Austrid. That's because Austrid is a pioneer in the segment. They have kind of virtually opened many offshore markets globally. These are essentially, in the next two, three years, are largely Austrid projects. So they have taken also a huge risk in some of those markets. It was not that long ago they were anticipating that they would go ahead with the Ocean Winds 1 and 2, and they signed the contracts. And just one quarter later, you got to go back and tell the suppliers that you need to cancel those contracts. Not surprising that their share price has plummeted by 40% in the time frame. Could the price pressure that developers are under have a knock-on effect for turbine firms in the form of turbine purchase agreements, for example? Yes, certainly that's been sort of the historical experiences. That's why we saw the turbine OEMs in such dire straits over the last couple of years, ignoring the commodity price increases, but the pressure on the suppliers to reduce their prices to allow projects to be competitive in auctions and for CFDs, etc., is exactly why the profitability of the OEMs were, were hit. And then the commodity price increase against fixed agreements was then you know, what really pushed us over the edge. The relaxing, if that's the right word, of CFD prices, of new PPA negotiations in the US, etc., just increases the liquidity of the projects and supply chain overall. So it gives a little bit more breathing room for those prices to increase. The turbine OEMs particularly have been very good in the past at knowing exactly what price they can sell their turbines to a project to make them just economically viable. I do expect that this will increase the profitability of the supply chain to a more acceptable level. That's the underlying intention, and I hope that's the effect that we see over the next cycle of projects. Looking at the cancelled projects through the lens of public relations for a moment, Allstead came in for really serious criticism as we've just mentioned from New Jersey's governor, Phil Murphy, over those cancellations of Ocean Winds 1 and 2. Now, the wind industry is going to understand why Orsted made the decision that it did. But how badly has its wider reputation been damaged with the public, particularly in New Jersey? And why didn't Vattenfall come in for the same level of criticism for scrapping Norfolk Boreas? Shashi, do you want to take that? I think, uh, you know, if you look at it uh, from the project timing perspective, why Austria is severely criticized for the simple fact that they put in 100 million into the escrow account and in August they pumped in again 200 additional million into the escrow account to set up the New Jersey and uh, manufacturing footprint for the supply chain. And then a month and a half later, when you come out and say that you want to pull a plug on those projects and those investments, that certainly uh, brings a big criticism from the regulators. And the timeline for those projects was 2024-2025. So neither did Orsted have the enough regal room to work around the projects. They have to delay by additional two years that would completely jeopardize the financial viability of the project. While in the UK, these projects are for a 2027 CFD, and Vattenfall has announced that just because of the supply chain costs have shot up, they're canceling the projects. However, they are reconsidering the projects if the equipment prices turn out to be slightly different. So there is still some ray of hope 
should they not find a right supply chain partner, then they would probably also fully abandon the project. And from the regulator perspective, they have time because the next rounds of CFD or the AR rounds are already available with higher volumes. It's 1.4 gigawatts of capacity that can be immediately reallocated in the subsequent rounds and they could still meet those targets. While New Jersey did not have that time. This is completely logical, of course, and logical from the wind industry's perspective. Will, is Orsted's name mud in New Jersey now? And is that even a problem? I think we need to be realistic about how much the general public knows about the offshore wind industry. When it's our day-to-day, we sort of feel quite familiar with these names or these organizations. I think for the average Joe on the street, maybe it's not quite such an issue. I I mean, I think the New Jersey situation might be a little bit more significant to Ersted because there had been quite a lot of political opposition somewhere like New Jersey. I think maybe the negative press around Ersted was probably a little bit higher. And so then the action of pulling out of these projects at such a critical point will increase the negative public feeling around that action. The global extent of this sort of realignment of Ersted strategy, not just in the US, but in Norway, in APAC, around refocusing to the most profitable and most impactful areas of the business in a fairly kind of drastic and surprising way, which has, I think, shocked the industry. And I think that shock has extended out into the general press at large uh, in a way that doesn't often happen for the offshore wind industry. I'm going to move us on to the final section of today's news review. Uh, so there's been some ominous signs of a potential wind industry trade war brewing between the EU and China. You've got Chinese turbine firms Sani and Minyang, which have both expressed an interest and potential investment in Europe. They're offering developers the opportunity to defer turbine payments for three years. The wind industry trade body, Wind Europe, has warned that Chinese turbine makers may squeeze out European rivals and jeopardize even the EU. Used energy security. So Wind Europe's CEO, Giles Dixon, claims that Chinese manufacturers are offering their turbines at prices up to 50% cheaper than their European rivals, while Siemens Gamesa and Enercon say that the Chinese turbine firms have an unfair advantage because they operate in a, quote, highly protected environment, which enables them to offer their turbines at competitive prices. So Wind Europe and the turbine firms want the EU to act but no decisions yet been made. But the fellow industry body, the Global Wind Energy Council, says a trade war with China would be completely counterproductive because trade barriers would pose a significant threat to the energy transition. And the analysts, Wood McKenzie, argue that a trade war could even have unforeseen effects which would rebound on European OEMs because a typical European turbine features Chinese components which could be impacted by these self-same tariffs. Shashi, first of all, do you think we're on the cusp of a European wind industry trade war with China? It's likely, but the magnitude will vary. So should Europe as a bloc impose such trade restrictions from China, they should be in a position to absorb that shocks, especially the European OEMs, because they've already diversified the supply chain. Would that mean that the Chinese companies would be disadvantaged? Yes, certainly to an extent, but not all the high growth markets in Europe are the target markets for Chinese OEMs. North America, Western and Northern Europe, they have been trying for the last 15 years, but they have not 
very successful in those markets. And I do not think that the situation will change anytime in the near future. However, in the other geographies like Latin America, Middle East and Africa, Central Asia and parts of Eastern Europe, they are very, very successful. And I would expect that they will dominate those markets from sub 5, 10% market share to north of 50, 60% market share by Chinese OEMs in most of these regions. So that's the markets where Chinese OEMs will target. I think Europe should didn't worry much because of the nature of the projects and the buying profile of the developers will not warrant a conducive business case for Chinese OEMs. Well, relatively briefly, if you would, what's your forecast here? Are we heading in the direction of a trade war or, or not? I think the, the few things I'd like to sort of touch on are, are one on the pace of technology development between the Chinese OEMs and the European ones. We know that Chinese OEMs are most far ahead in terms of the developing these you know, 20, circa 20 megawatt machines and that that process has slowed down more with the European OEMs. I echo Shashi's comment around the buying profile of European project developers. They have strong relationships with the existing Western OEMs and There are also concerns around bankability, not necessarily of the Chinese technology, but around the organizational bankability of the Chinese suppliers and the the strength of the contracts for both supply, but what's more importantly, the service contracts that might be available from Chinese manufacturers. So I still think it's unlikely that we'll see Chinese turbines on large offshore projects anytime soon in Europe. The incumbents in the European markets for onshore wind, uh, particularly in Western Europe, are strong and Chinese haven't been able to break into those markets. But I also agree, and we certainly see in Southeast Asia and Australia, in South America, that the market share and profile of the Chinese suppliers are growing. Certainly in Southeast Asia and Australia, where we have emerging offshore industries who are already used to using Chinese turbines for onshore projects, that that may be a place where we start to see Chinese wind turbines offshore. And I think we, should, we shouldn't forget as well that you know the Chinese offshore industry is vast domestically. I think it's easy to forget that sitting in Europe. You know, we don't see that very often, but you know there's a huge amount of track record and installed capacity already. I think sometimes we can sound a little bit derogatory to the technology, and we probably shouldn't. You talked earlier about the size that the Chinese OEMs are looking at. Do you not think that there might be a point at which developers are looking at the Chinese OEMs? And in terms of offshore maintenance costs in particular, they might actually think this is beneficial to me to be going for these larger turbines, even withstanding all the comments that we've previously made. That's for, for a while has been the sort of the approach to reduce overall project costs, higher wind turbine capacity, you know, fewer units with knock-on impacts on balance of plant, etc. What we've seen, that can also concentrate some of the technology risk. So the reliability of an individual machine becomes much more impactful on the overall availability and, and performance of the project. And I think particularly if you're looking at newer and unfamiliar technology at such a large scale, then I think when you layer up those risks from a bankability perspective, you might sort of tip over into project risks. I'm really sad to say that we've run out of time. Will Sheard, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the News Review. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me again. Thank you very much indeed, Shashi Bala, for joining us again as a panellist on the News Review. Thank you. Likewise, and we're welcome. And once again, it's been a fascinating discussion. I look forward to the next time. 
You've been listening to the Windpower News Review with Claire Warren and Ian Griggs, looking back at the big stories over the last four weeks. To hear more from Windpower, you'll find us wherever you download your podcasts. For more news, comment and analysis on the wind industry, visit windpowermonthly.com.